Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 36 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcasting appliance. Today, I have a real treat for you as I have a live recording from the SCC 2018 Compliance and Ethics Institute. Uh, coming in from the bullpen, bullpen as a left-handed reliever, Lewis Sapperman, uh, former CCO at Dun & Bradstreet, uh, sits in for Mike Volkoff. The rest of the panel is, of course, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Mr. Monitor's Jay Rosen, and Jonathan Armstrong, founder at Quartery in London. We have a wide-ranging podcast on multiple topics today. I know you will enjoy it. Uh, We had a little problem with the audio, so my questions may not be as loud as the answers, but the important thing is that you hear our panelists, so I hope you will uh, listen to it in full, and I know you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Everything Compliance gang is the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, with a new moniker, also founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong from Quartery Compliance in London, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, and in from the bullpen as a left-handed closer, Louis <laughs> Sapperman. Louis, welcome to Everything Compliance. Thank you so much. So uh, we are here at SCCE, the 2018 Compliance and Ethics Institute. We're going to have a wide-ranging podcast today with a wide variety of topics, but I thought we might start with uh, maybe with you, Jay. What are some of the highlights for you uh, so far? Uh, So far, there was a real great uh, keynote session this morning, Um, just really, I think, motivating people for how to use leadership to get things uh, accomplished, and I took away... uh, a lot from that. I saw our friend Samantha Kellen. Uh, She was doing her annual um, session that she does for newbies about the best ways to use the uh, conference to do networking and how to meet with people and that, you know, although your company may want you to come and get all your CEU credits and go to all the uh, conferences, there's also a certain value by, you know, not feeling that pressure of having to go to everything and Sometimes the person that you're sitting next to at dinner might be the uh, the most important connection you're going to make at this conference. So uh, I, I, those are the ones that I'm uh, that I saw today, and there is also uh, my colleagues here, Mr. Fox and Mr. Kelly, who gave a great presentation on AI and what the future of uh, compliance may look like in the next 15 to 20 years. So that was something that was also of note. Thank you, Mr. Armstrong. Yeah, I, to pick up on one of Jay's, really, I think that quite often, I think we said this last year, it's the conversations in the corridor that are the most lasting, and I've certainly had some really interesting conversations in the corridor. Uh, stepped back a bit, I thought the volunteer program was excellent again. We should just mention that 2,400 families will eat this week. Uh, that may not have eaten otherwise due to the actions of those who turned up for the conference a day early and got on a bus and went and packed stuff in a warehouse. So we should honour all those who did that. How about a a shout-out to our bus driver, too? Yeah, and that was amazing, actually, Jay. So um, a couple of other quick things. Uh, Somebody decided that, uh, the conference decided that because people had turned out on a Saturday, they'd donate $3,000 Somebody's very kindly agreed to match that. So 2,400 families eat this week and $6,000 in cash. And you're exactly right, an honorable mention, the bus driver, the coach driver who drove us to the venue decided that rather than 
sit in his coach and wait for us to finish, he would go into the warehouse himself. So Jay and I and our coach driver packed pairs into baskets and stuff because he wanted to do his bit given that uh, people coming into Vegas at a conference had given up their Saturday to do that. So I, I think, a, you know, almost an emotional experience. It's always great to see the way people from different parts of the compliance profession get together and do, you know, packing of pears or sardines or whatever it will be that isn't their natural forte. I guess the other two things that are lasting memories to me, obviously, great. Uh, I'm personally happy with this. GDPR's still the topic that seems to be the, you know, the... Um, the, the mustard and ketchup through the hot dog of compliance at the moment, you know, it seems to impact on everything. And uh, Lisa Fine did an excellent uh, advanced discussion group, I thought, today on uh, helplines. And it's interesting how stuff like helplines are still a big issue. You know, there was a hope that with Sapander, that with French authorities recognizing whistleblowers as more of the part of the corporate culture, that those conflicts between Europe and the US would diminish. But that certainly doesn't seem to be the impression from the room this morning. So maybe some quick highlights from me, I guess. Uh, so Matt, in addition to becoming the coolest guy in compliance, I now find out you're young. So, <laughs> uh, really, you just had a, a double-header day here. To be clear, it's not that somebody said I was young, Tom. They simply said you are older than me, which in my world is the only detail that matters. But anyways. <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, what are some of the highlights for you today? Well, I actually do think that probably the most enjoyable part for me was uh, Roy Snell's farewell speech this morning. That was good. So Roy is now stepping down from SCCE. He's been CEO for, I think, 18 years, and then he was head of the Healthcare Compliance Association since 1996. So 22 years, he's been doing one form or another of this, and now he's going to be leaving as of November 1st, so this was his swan song. He gave a very good speech this morning, but what I particularly liked uh, about what Roy said was there was a line that he gave which you can all read on Radical Compliance, because I've already posted his farewell address up there, um, that companies with strong ethics and compliance become trusted companies. Countries with strong companies become trusted countries. Trusted countries are more competitive in the global economy, and in the global economy, more competitive countries improve their standards of living. And he really got to the heart of why do we actually do this, because business corruption hurts people and makes people suffer through no fault of their own. So we are doing this to stamp that out. And as mind-numbing as some compliance exercises can be or as maddening as some of these challenges can be, we do do this for a bigger purpose, which uh, Roy gets. And he has been saying that one form or another for many years now. And I just think that he said it very eloquently in his farewell address. And uh, then he gave a fist bump to the crowd and walked off stage. And that's how I want to do it, too, someday. So, Lou Sapperman, uh, you have come from off-Broadway, off <laughs> in from the bullpen, uh, substituting in um, to visit with us today. Uh, what are some of the highlights for you on this first day? Yeah, so um, uh, coming... 
coming in from the bullpen, as any good reliever does, you show up really late, which is exactly <laughs> what I've done. Um, so I, I, I think my, my flight got in around midnight last night, and I slept in a little bit this morning uh, to, to make up for that. But uh, the SCCE uh, is always a great opportunity to reconnect with, uh, with folks. Um, you, you stay connected in one way, shape, or form, but there is no uh, substitute for uh, up close and personal uh, connections with, with people. And just walking the halls here, the number of people I have seen and stopped and talked to and, uh, uh, and reconnected with is just wonderful. Uh, and then uh, with doing uh, a presentation this afternoon, um, for me, the SCCE has always been uh, about giving back to the compliance community and uh, the opportunity to speak to folks first and then to have people come up and ask questions and uh, really give back. Compliance for me has been, has given me so much since I have really gotten into the compliance community uh, over these past seven or eight years. And I really feel great about coming to SCCE because I can start help, helping to develop that next, uh, next generation of compliance talent. And uh, so it's a lot of fun for me. So, gentlemen, uh, we're going to move to some current events to perhaps get uh, your take on them. And, Jonathan, uh, and, of course, there's been no prep for this, so it'll no. be even more fun. <laughs> what is coming? Jonathan, you're having to suffer through the, uh, the pains of Brexit uh, <laughs> now. But what I wanted to ask you is, have your, has your firm, have you been asked to, or are people considering the compliance implications from any of the scenarios of Brexit, and or is that simply something that's really lost in the shuffle with all of the other issues you're having to deal with? Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question. Uh, to cut it, to cut the answer short, I mean, I think if I'm being really honest with you, we started doing quite a lot of Brexit planning right early on. So if you look on our website, I guess the March before the referendum, there's an analysis of how we think that data privacy law will change with any Brexit. I still say within any Brexit. Uh, I think you probably all know what side of the fence I'm on, but there's still a vain hope, possibly, possibly realistic hope that Brexit might not happen. But uh, Assuming it does, of course, lots of things are a mess. Uh, I think I said, and, and the blog's still on our website prior to the referendum, that there was no scenario on which the compliance world uh, gets better in, in, in most cases. It gets more challenging in all sorts of areas. You know, the sanctions regime is an EU-based regime. We're going to have two different sanctions regimes if there's Brexit, and they will diverge. The UK's influenced the EU sanctions regime. A lot of the research is done by the UK. But of course, the UK has slightly different attitudes in some zones. Russia, for example, maybe because of the Schripal poisonings. Uh, so, so we're likely to see a divergence of two sanctions lists. So for compliance professionals, it's just one more list uh, to have to check. In areas like chemicals regulatory, that's an EU-based regime. It was created after the UK joined the EU. It's based in Finland. All of that has to get unraveled. Data privacy, as I say, gets challenging partly because of Theresa May's attitude to surveillance. Uh, areas like bribery and corruption don't change that much. But the UK is often the engine of some compliance developments. And 
as a very general rule, regulators in the UK tend to be quite well resourced. And so they loan uh, to places like Romania or Bulgaria or whatever that might be. That, of course, could still happen post-Brexit, but all of this thing is complex. So to answer your question, uh, I think we, um, we had an initial, right after the vote, we had an initial uh, load of calls with, you know, can you speak to our general counsel? It has to be Tuesday. And so we had a frantic weekend preparing research notes, etc., etc. This is right after the election. I can remember graphically one call with a general counsel who says, okay, you're, you're going to get a new prime minister. Will that new prime minister be, I think her words were more or less volatile than General Pinochet. Uh, and I was like, no. And then she said, so your new regime, uh, more or less predictable than North Korea. Uh, and then she said to me, okay, so if your answer to either of those two questions change, I want you to give me a ring on my direct dial straight away. If not, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll plan for it. So I think a lot of people were looking at planning initially. Then they've taken a step back. And now as the precipice looms larger, People are looking at it more. You know, we've made a new film on our website. If people want to look at, at, at the Cordry website, there's a, a you know 12-minute film on how Brexit might affect different areas of compliance. I think people are starting to look and plan. Uh, obviously, with some things like sanctions lists, it's relatively simple. You know, you're going to have that conversation with your providers, make sure that they're uh, going to ingest those lists. But with other things, you know, if you are in chemicals regulatory or financial services, then there's going to be a challenging, uh, challenging divorce, if you like, to, to, to observe. So I think, is it a mess? Yes. Uh, should we stop saying it's a mess? Probably. And I think now we've got to be focused on, you know, if it does happen in March or April or May, if the backstop's extended regardless, We've got to focus on what's happening because some of the agencies now are almost going through a sort of divorce process as well. You know, if you look at areas like data privacy, you can start and see some sort of divergence with uh, with regulators, and obviously you've got to plan for all of that. You know, Tom, it's worth mentioning about Brexit that roughly 12 months ago, the audit regulator in this country, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, they published a bulletin to audit firms about issues they will inspect the audit firms on in 2018 and probably into 2019. And one of those issues that they warned about 12 months ago was a company's plannings for Brexit. Mm -hmm. They will expect the audit firms to be asking companies, are you going to be caught by surprise by this or not? Um, and I, we haven't seen the results of any of that. I don't know to what extent audit firms are asking companies about this. but. Here in the United States, regulators are, in various ways, telegraphing to companies like, you know, this, don't let this catch you by surprise and don't fall on your face when Brexit falls on its face, which I think is what will happen come March. But, yeah. You know, Matt, you have uh, been following Jay Clayton and his tenureship at the SEC now throughout this administration. Mm -hmm. uh, I once had the, the opportunity to ask you, is he Jay Clayton who we thought he was? But now at 18 months, have you really seen uh, a significant change in either enforcement or even SEC focus, incremental change, or perhaps something else? I think that you um, 
probably are right now seeing Jay Clayton trying to get to that which he had wanted to do all along. But uh, at least, I think, for the first nearly 12 months of his job, Jay Clayton had a mess to deal with. He had, it was one mess after another that he arrived, and um, right away there was a big cybersecurity breach at the SEC. Uh, then right after that, there was a big scandal at the PCAOB, which resulted in all the senior leaders getting fired. Um, so there was one turmoil after another that kept on pulling Jay Clayton away from what he wanted to do. Now that all of those things are behind him, now you can actually start to see Jay Clayton is getting around to doing what I think he wants to do, uh, which very clearly is to alleviate the reporting obligations for a large swath of companies under the logic, um, flawed logic in my opinion, but under the logic that if you do that, more companies will therefore go public, and after that, Shangri-La ensues or something like that. Um, so you are seeing him move on exempting many more companies from Section 404B of Sarbanes-Oxley, which is the internal control audits. Um, you are seeing him at least talk about, and this is, I just saw this today, um, semi-annual reporting is suddenly back on the SEC's regulatory agenda, which is interesting because two weeks ago there was news that Jay Clayton said, um, I don't think that's going to happen. And then comes, poop, this is out on the uh, RegFlex agenda, which roughly is the working timeline for forthcoming rules. We don't know exactly where this is or when we might see it, but it's there, is that he's going to entertain it. And a whole lot of people then went back to what Jay Clayton said two, two weeks ago. And what he actually said was, I don't think for the big companies we're going to get away from semi-annual, from quarterly reporting. Oh, well, I, I have to admit, I did not see that part about for big companies. But now suddenly you see, well, what about small companies? He didn't actually say that there would be no semi-annual reporting. He only said that big companies will still probably have quarterly reporting. So you might see him do something like also eliminate or propose to eliminate um, quarterly reporting maybe for like emerging growth companies. They only have to do it every six months. Um, I have mixed views on how useful that may be. If I had to pick one or the other, I think semi-annual reporting for small companies is a better idea than no socks requirements, which is a terrible idea. Um, but you are going to start seeing more and more of Jay Clayton edging towards that. And then the other really interesting thing about enforcement, of course, is this uh, wackadoo enforcement action with Tesla and Elon Musk, um, <laughs> where Basically, Jay Clayton said Elon Musk is so central to Tesla and its value to investors that to force him out as CEO would harm investors. Uh, so therefore, we're not going to do it. Well, if we're not sanctioning executives personally, if we're not imposing fines on companies, you know, I'm still, I'm unclear on exactly how are we going to impose any punishment on anyone for anything if that will harm investors. Um, I would say that uh, Elon Musk being as nutty as a fruitcake, which I think he is, uh, that is probably also harmful to investors. So maybe we should shunt him aside to be like chief strategy officer. That happens with big tech companies all the time. Um, but, you know, if you see this Clayton doctrine take root now that uh, maybe some senior executives will be so indispensable we can't punish them personally, Every Tom, Dick, and Harry is going to say, well, I, too, am indispensable to my company. And I think many CEOs, as 
big as their skill set may be, they're probably not indispensable, and they probably could be sanctioned uh, if they commit misconduct. And you know, you, you have to start wondering where is Clayton going? But he's going places. You can see that now. I think that's a that is a dangerous precedent, though, isn't it? Like if you look at I don't know Tyco, for example. Um, you know, Tyco would be another. Uh, uh, Organization back in the day, however many years ago that was, mm-hmm. six, seven years, yeah. where you could, uh, Dennis Kozlowski, Dennis Kozlowski. You, you could argue almost the same for him, couldn't you, really? That he he was regarded as such a guru, whatever the word is, yeah. the share price was very much dependent on him, and, and it was a house of cards. I'm not suggesting that Tesla is, for example, but we... But you must be right. We can't have people who are too big for the law. Yeah. Um, and that's where we'd be going if we followed that argument through, wouldn't we? I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, Kozlowski, I'm sure, would have said at the time that he was indispensable to the company. Well, actually, I think that the man who had to clean up his mess, Ed Breen, who inherited a, uh, you know, a company at the brink of disaster, which had no money, had regulatory trouble up to its eyeballs, and he saved that company... That's the sort of leader who strikes me as more instrumental to a company than some quack like Dennis Kozlowski or some you know, person like uh, Elon Musk, who I think is so brilliant, but his brilliance has you know, elevated him above the mere mundane ta- challenges of like, you know, running a public company. Um, so it, I, I It's I a stark like it. contrast between what we're talking about today with the SEC and the Yates memo mm-hmm. only a couple of years years ago, uh, and it does suggest that there is a, a shift in the in the thinking yeah. uh, within uh, within the government. Louis Saperman, you have talked uh, over the past few years about a 360 degree view of communication, and you talked about how you implemented that, how you used that to communicate uh, with your of course your customer base from the compliance function and to both communicate uh, and receive communication. What I wanted to ask is one of the themes of this and several other conferences I've been to this year has been generally around organizational justice and organizational fairness. In using that type of communications that uh, you uh, uh, walk the walk and talk the talk with, did you, uh, I really got the sense that it helped the organizational justice of your company because it made uh, your employees uh, feel like they were part of the process. Was that a byproduct, or was that something you actually were trying to do? Uh, I think that uh, communications and compliance is one of the key tools that any uh, compliance team and leadership team uh, should use in order to build culture. And organizational justice is ultimately a result of the, the compliance culture that you've that you've created. So it's certainly not by any means an accident. Uh, And I think uh, organizational justice comes from very deliberate uh, activities by a compliance team uh, all the time. I had a question uh, right before I walked in the room here from uh, a compliance officer, and they were talking about uh, the amount of information that should be shared. Uh, And it was in an M&A context. And and uh, 
the lawyer in me always has this, oh, you don't want to share anything and mm. keep everything as confidential as possible. But luckily, the lawyer in me has long gone in many respects. <laughs> and I am uh, a compliance professional to the core. And the reality is that uh, you should generally use the concept of open and honest communications in everything you do. Uh, because that's what will build trust. That's what will build uh, a sense of organizational justice. Communications should be used in many ways. One of the ways that organizational justice will come through clearly in communications is by, able, by being able to talk about how your company acts uh, if and when bad things happen. And that uh, clear communications about the things the company does and how it does it uh, is is very important uh, using using people who have been involved in in issues as part of the communications. We instituted uh, I know lots of companies at the opening of their their code of conduct training. They may have the CEO do uh, a nice statement about the values of the company. I think that's wonderful, and we have done that. And we had done that in the past, but we started uh, a couple of years ago instead using somebody who was middle management, who was a whistleblower, who actually had brought issues to the company mm -hmm. uh, forward, gave them a platform to talk about the importance of ethics and compliance to them and how they see uh, the company through the lens of ethics and compliance. And that is straight 360 degree communication, trying to reach all of your constituents and reaching them with a message that speaks directly to organizational justice. So I think that uh, it's something that any, any good compliance professional should be uh, thinking very strategically around how they, how they communicate uh, to, to generate that, that feeling of organizational justice. Yep. I, I have a weird anecdote which maybe influences, uh, illustrates the difference. One time I was asked to approve one of those films uh, which was the CEO, uh, and he, he, he said, I want you all to take this uh, compliance training seriously. It's, it's uh, about everything we do in the business, and it it's, uh, touches me in the heart as well, I think, were the words. All very good, except that he was filmed in front of a, like a trophy cabinet thing in his office. It had a reflected surface. And if you looked really closely, you could see the camera and you could see a girl dressed in black holding up cards, which included the, I feel it in my heart, open square brackets, Pat Hart, close square brackets. <laughs> <That's excellent>. <laughs> <laughs> and the client was saying, how is it from a legal point of view? I said, from a legal point of view, it's fine. <laughs> But let me just send you a screen grab of a freeze frame and show me why. <laughs> show me why this isn't a good idea that we. But so, so to your point, I think a CEO that's reading from flashcards, you'd you'd take uh, somebody who's lived and breathed that over the flashcards any day, wouldn't you? A absolutely. The fact is that that's a great anecdote, and it goes directly to how important communications are, uh, and. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard a couple of people talk about how communications experts are among the more desired uh, additions to compliance teams mm -hmm. now. Because if you look at 
the building of compliance culture. And if we assume that the building of compliance culture is one of the key roles that a, a CCO plays, uh, doing communications well is right up there on the top of the list of the important things that a CCO does. And you can do lots and lots of stupid things very easily and without thinking uh, in communications. Mm -hmm. Doing it well is hard. Mr. Rosen. Yes. So the uh, how long have you been uh, with AMI now? About 18 months. 18 months. You moved from what I would characterize as more of a uh, product tech company to more of a service company. And I was wondering, what's really the difference, if any, in your discussions with clients about the types of services that uh, Affiliated Monitors offers, part one. Mm -hmm. Part two is, uh, one of the taglines uh, is Independent Integrity Monitor. What, what do you see really in the marketplace? Are people, do, do they understand the power of an independent integrity monitor, those three words being all separate words, as opposed to um, just bringing in a third party to uh, to do a risk assessment or other work? Great questions, Tom. I'll take the first one first. Uh, that makes sense, right? Take the first one first. Uh, so prior to uh, being Mr. Monitor in my other life, I was uh, Mr. Translations. And um, at that time, while it was a, a technical service, there was also a lot of um, helping a client get through a process, hand-holding, and the, the couple things that I focused on at the time were helping companies localize their codes of conduct for a global organization, and at the same time helping companies who are running global investigations, how they could deal with um, emails and contracts that were in a foreign language. And um, luckily for my clients, I wasn't the one doing the translations, but I was the one uh, sharing the process with them for how that works. Uh, coming over into AMI, uh, there is still issues of process versus technology, and now what we're explaining to our clients a lot is, um, especially in wake of the Benkowski memo from a couple weeks ago, is uh, it, it appears now that uh, corporate monitors are reaching a nadir, and uh, the way that Benkowski has described it in the memo is there's really a couple um, determining factors on whether or not they're going to need a corporate monitor. And that's if the uh, company would do considerably better by having a monitor put in space, in place rather, and then also whether or not there is a change in the leadership of the organization who was there. So what we're kind of seeing is a shift that in a previous world there was uh, integrity monitors who were part of a deferred prosecution settlement, and now what we're seeing is that conversation is moving over to a proactive independent monitorship. And with it being proactive, what we're talking about is two different prongs. One might be that you haven't updated your code of conduct in five years or so and you want to get a baseline understanding of where your company is from a cultural perspective. But the other thing that might happen is you may be uh, taking uh, an internal investigation upon yourself and once you start to find some things that may be of note and that you may want to self-disclose, at that point, it really would help to bring in an independent integrity monitor to help you begin initial, initial uh, remediation. And then if you go to the point where you are talking to the regulators, as uh, 
you know, they, they used to say you only have one chance to make a good first impression. So if you've actually taken it upon yourself to do an independent ethics and compliance monitorship and begin the remediation process, that can pay dividends with helping you get a declination and having to defer uh, having a, a monitor. Matt, you and I had the opportunity to visit uh, on, on that topic of the Kowski memo. Mm -hmm. But there's a second part of that memo that we've uh, talked about, and that is the uh, decision by Minkowski or other at the Department of Justice not to hire a new compliance counsel. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. you have some pretty uh, pretty strong thoughts on that, and so I was wondering if maybe we could just kick that around with the group a little bit. I, I thank you, because I was going to flag you that I would like to uncork a little bit on this idea. Um, so, Benkowski said that he is going to dispense with the in-house compliance counsel role at the Justice Department and then work to train federal prosecutors more on good corporate compliance programs. Okay, fine. And then also try to recruit more prosecutors with some corporate compliance experience. This is where I start to roll my eyes and say, come on. Um, if you look at what federal prosecutors are paid, they are paid not much relative to most compliance officers who are senior enough to understand what a good compliance program looks like. Uh, the maximum pay scale for a federal prosecutor in the United States, if you're in a big market uh, with a lot of skills and you're at the top of the pay grade, you make 164500 a year. That's it. And that's not a lot of money if you are a senior VP compliance officer in New York or in Los Angeles or Chicago. You make at least that much money, if not more, as the base salary plus the bonus plus the stock comp and all. You can make a lot more. So um, I get it that nobody goes into government service to make a lot of money while they're there. They go into government service to make a lot of money after they leave. And that does make sense if you are in law firm world, which is what Benkowski knows, because that's all he's ever done. Uh, so he would think, well, of course, if you're a second or third year associate and you're making like, I don't know, 185, maybe $200,000, yeah, sure, you'll take a pay cut then. Um, and then you do that for three or four years in the Justice Department. You come out, you're going to get senior partner by the time you're 38. Life is great, all this stuff. That makes sense if you're in the law firm world. But I haven't found any compliance officer yet who has said, like, if you're a program manager doing a tour of duty as a federal prosecutor for two or three years, you're going to come out and be gangbusters and be chief compliance officer somewhere else uh, because of that federal government experience. So I look at all that and I'm like, who are you kidding that you're going to find anybody qualified enough who would bother to do that because there's no upside to people? Um, I see Lewis, who has been down this road, you know, nodding figure, uh, vigorously, so I'm going to hand it off to him. But that's my take, and, like, what's going and on? I, 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 think, I think that's absolutely spot on. Uh, I am actually in the job market right now and looking, looking at what my next, my next role would be. There you be. go. You can make 164. I, I could. That's, <laughs> that's right. But, and, and you want to know something? The, the fact of the matter is there is a lot of room for training the people they have there mm -hmm. uh, to, to learn more about compliance. But if you want somebody uh, to be in the room when the Department of Justice is debriefing companies on their compliance programs, uh, it's not going to be somebody who has just been 
trained on it a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's, not, that's not a reality. Uh, they won't do a great job. They won't do a great job of asking the key questions mm-hmm. uh, that need to be asked. And uh, for one, 164, what you're going to likely get is somebody who is a junior person in compliance. Except they won't get that. And, yeah. Right. And they, they won't want that. Mm-hmm. They, they have no interest in that, ultimately. And so if you're looking for somebody who is a, uh, a senior person in compliance, that is just not going to be a, a, a great incentive. And right now, at least in the compliance world, there is very little incentive for me, uh, having been a CCO of a company, yeah. to go into the government because there isn't actually anything at the end of the rainbow of working for the government thinking like in a law firm world that you're going to ha- uh, make the money back yeah. uh, on the back end. That's that's just not a calculus right now that, that I see. My bone of contention with this Justice Department is that there are a lot of very talented people there, but they are, all of them, are career big law firm people, to the best of my knowledge. I don't know of anybody in the upper echelons who actually has spent a significant amount of time as a general counsel or a chief compliance officer or something like that. Doesn't have to be all of them, but at least one or two would be nice. Um, And just if you want to sketch this out, in some parallel universe, Donald Trump did not sack his transition team when he got reelected, as he did in our universe, because Chris Christie was supposed to be in charge of that, and he had the chief compliance officer for Stephen A. Cohen's investment firm running the planning for the Justice Department, and he may very well have been, say, deputy attorney general or head of assistant attorney general or something like that. There were other people out there who had some corporate experience. Like I said, it doesn't have to be all of them, but in some parallel world, there are some of those people working in the Justice Department that I suspect have a bit more with it and understanding of how corporate misconduct actually works and how you resolve it than some of the people in this world with this Justice Department where it's law firm guys all the way through. Mr. Armstrong, uh, how would the serious fraud office handle this type of question or would it be the, the barristers, solicitors of England who might give guidance or how would this type of decision be made? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think famously the last director of the SFO said that he wasn't, I'm paraphrasing, but he wasn't going to give advice or guidance on anything, and that uh, there was qualified law firms across the city, I'd hope was included, that would give guidance, and he wasn't going to. Whether we'll see a different approach uh, with the new director remains to be seen. My suspicion is possibly. I think that there will be a move to try and, I wouldn't say soften, but I think perhaps make the SFO appear more approachable. Obviously, the last regime had some issues with the legal profession, particularly because of the uh, attempted erosion of privilege. Now, hopefully, that's behind them. The uh, ENRC uh, appeal succeeded. The new director has, I think, announced that she isn't going to appeal that lost appeal. So hopefully there's room for bridges to be rebuilt with the, with, with the legal profession in, insofar as they've been attacked by the, the last regime. I think as far as guidance is concerned, then again, we often lose sight of the fact that the 
guidance such as it exists under the UK Bribery Act, so in terms of adequate procedures, etc., is not guidance from the SFO, it is not guidance from prosecutors, it's guidance from the Ministry of Justice. And again, that isn't, I think it might have the same criticisms as you were saying, you know, some of the people involved at the MOJ uh, uh, were periodically only in touch with reality. I can remember one of the consultation exercises where somebody said, why did why was this particular section going to be a holdout for the MOJ? And, and I'm paraphrasing, but the civil servant involved said, because everybody knows that bribery is a cause of global warming. And, and this is the official leading this particular bit. And, and somebody said, so walk me through that logic. I have to admit, I did not know bribery was a cause of global It's a cause of global warming. And the reason is that you pay bribes to officials in uh, various uh, Asian countries uh, and Brazil, etc., to deforest. Uh, deforestation would not happen but for bribery, and therefore the logic train is that if you are tough on bribery in the Bribery Act, then you can halt global warming. And, and there were some I mean, there is there is an element of logic. <laughs> There's a, it's a small element, but it's an element. All right, you know what? That's but, uh, sure. Given that we're in the you know Las Vegas, the home of gaming, if you'd have said to the twenty people or so in the room, okay, here are odds on the answers. <laughs> Answer number one being, I'm I'm sticking out for this to to halt global warming. I think the odds on that would have been pretty staggering. Long odds. Long, yeah, yeah. long, long odds, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think you've always got to take the guidance under the Bribery Act with, with a pinch of salt. And, and how, how we look, I mean, I, I know that the SFO particularly have been looking at uh, what good looks like in terms of compliance programs. I've, I've had discussions with them. There are cases. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of DPA cases. We've got a couple, we've got a Section Seven prosecution by the CPS rather than the SFO, who that almost tells us what good isn't. You know, just because you're a small company doesn't mean to say you don't need procedures. They can be less onerous than if you're a large company, but you still need something. You can't just say bribery is bad, everyone knows it. Mm -hmm. So how will we approach uh, assessments of compliance regimes? I, I think it's going to be the same, slightly muddled answer as, uh, as in the US. Are prosecutors and career prosecutors best placed to advise on the practical effects of compliance programs? Probably not. Are they better at advising on that than career civil servants who are trying to stamp out bribery to hold global warming? Probably. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's the binary choice you've got. And on that basis, then, then you take the SFO. But I feel like I'm being very negative on both Brexit and... <laughs> Maybe that's why I rolled in life today. You're English. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time. But mm -hmm. I was wondering if anybody has either a rant or a shout-out. We'll start with you, Mr. Rosen. 
Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Kelly, and our off-off-Broadway star, Mr. Sapperman. So, uh, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us, Jay? Well, on behalf of myself and um, Mr. Kelly, we would just like to continue to chastise you and your Houston Astros. Somebody said that we were going to have dinner on Sunday night and watch game one of the World Series with the Astros. And he, this person who made such a prediction was no Nostradamus to me. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Armstrong. Well, I, I was interested in uh, some, something that you were saying and you were teasing Matt about being young. And that brought me back to Vegas, of course, also famous in at least English eyes for being the scene of some of the greatest boxing matches in life. And this, this uh, I, I, I learned one thing at this conference on Saturday. I've often thought that I wouldn't cross the road to see Mike Tyson. I had the opportunity of walking past, uh, you know, within about 50 yards of where he was. I also worked out that I wouldn't walk 50 yards to meet Mike Tyson. I didn't need the full width of a street. But uh, it brought me back to uh, a boxing great from sort of my youth, a guy called Chris Eubank. I don't know whether you ever saw him here. Mm -hmm. His son now boxes. But Chris Eubank was, you know, was a decent boxer, but was also, if you like, the, the closest we've got to Yogi Berra. So would say the most ridiculous things. And, and in your honor, uh, one Eubank quote. Oh, this will be good. <laughs> one Eubank quote that sticks in the mind, and he had a, a, a quite a pronounced lisp, so I'll attempt that as well, which was, uh, he, he said, I'm not young, but I am young enough to be young. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can use that as your epithet. <laughs> um, On that note, Mr. Kelly. Yeah, sure. So I actually, I know I've been picking on the uh, various branches of the Trump administration today, so I'm going to close by giving the Securities and Exchange Commission a shout-out for something that I do think is good, uh, which is Jay Clayton's attention to cybersecurity. And uh, not long ago, the SEC Enforcement Division published a special report. I didn't even know they did that, but they did. Um, so the Enforcement Division published a report looking at data breaches at nine major companies that had fallen victim to phishing scams where all of them did not just lose data, they lost actual money. And so these were very large companies, did, then I, did not identify them, but they collectively lost well over $100 million through phishing scams. And so this special uh, enforcement report walked through what these scams were, uh, what sort of control failures had allowed them to happen. And uh, this is the second time in recent weeks where the SEC has uh, given corporate America a kick in the rear end, probably much needed, about attention to cybersecurity. Um, several weeks ago, for the first time ever, the SEC slapped a million dollar fine on a company for failing to uh, have sufficient controls for, I think it's called the identity theft rule. Uh, it was a broker dealer firm out in Iowa where its loose access policies basically led it to fall victim to some hackers that tricked them to, they posed as contractors who need password resets, and so they lost data of their customers. So that's twice now in recent weeks we've seen the SEC basically tell companies cybersecurity is important. It's important in these specific ways. Federal security laws apply. You have to pay attention to this, and I would not be surprised if 
The next time around, the Enforcement Division does not give a special report. It gives a special sanction to somebody, and that will not feel special to the company when they get it. So good for them that they are treating cybersecurity now with the seriousness that it certainly deserves. So, Lewis Saperman, first of all, thank you for joining us today. As yeah. always, it's uh, a lot of fun and very informative, but uh, now that you've heard some rants and or shout-outs, do you have a rant and or shout-out for us? I have a rant and a shout-out. Being the closer, I get to, to take <laughs> up all the rest of the time. So uh, my, my rant is uh, uh, sports-related, but it also ties in the fact that you've, uh, you've been mentioning me as a... Uh, as a thespian and uh, somebody who's been on stage recently, I'm I'm currently uh, doing a doing a show in New Jersey. Uh, um, wait until dark, and I literally do get to die on stage, and it is a bit of a uh, a metaphor for all of the sports teams I root for right now. Uh, Tom Tom and I being uh, Big Ten Big Ten fans, uh, the Rutgers football team is just unwatchably bad, uh, unfortunately, this season, uh, as well as most of the other sports teams I root for. Uh, the shout-out, I think, is to um, uh, the profession and, and this conference in particular, uh, starting to uh, learn that uh, data is actually an important part of the future of compliance. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the presentation that uh, Tom and uh, Matt did this morning on AI the presentation that Erica Salmon Byrne did on KPIs. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, compliance uh, of the future will in fact rely upon data of all sorts to not, not just uh, understand what's happening within your compliance program, to, but also to help predict where your compliance pro uh, program needs to go. And, uh, and I think it's been, frankly, a long time in coming. For, uh, for the compliance profession to, uh, to finally get there, but it feels, feels like this year uh, you're seeing that a little bit more and more, and, uh, and I hope that uh, that is uh, uh, reminiscent of where we will be uh, in the future. So I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, actually have a shout-out, mm. uh, and it's based upon uh, Mr. Armstrong and his remarks about Mike Tyson. And walking past a store where Mike Tyson is on <laughs> That store is called Field of Dreams, and I've been in that store, and I've been in that store where Mike Tyson was signing, and I've had an autograph signed. Okay. I spoke to Mike Tyson. Uh, but that's, uh, and he was incredibly gracious. That store is run by a guy named Mike Novelli. And Mike Novelli uh, is a Las Vegas resident, and he started a charity called Pawcastic. What Pawcastic does is it goes around to animal shelters where they're rescue dogs and it gives the dogs what is called enrichment training. Enrichment training is obedience training and swim training. It gives them an opportunity to go out and play and get out of these shelters. And what it does is it makes them uh, uh, better candidates for adoption. Mm. And he and his wife, Melissa, bought this up all on their own. They've done it all on their own. They had a uh, big fundraiser cruise last night that unfortunately I couldn't attend uh, because it started in the afternoon during my, one of my presentations. So I want to give a shout out to Mike and Melissa. They've done a great amount of work. Uh, they're doing an incredibly uh, important thing. They, they were two of the leaders that got this county that Las Vegas sits in, Henderson County, to do away with kill shelters. So uh, Mike, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, here's a shout out to you. And if you're from Las Vegas and you're listening to this podcast, 
go down to Field of Dreams and make a donation to Podcasting. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for taking the time to visit with uh, visit with me today. It's been great to do this on site, and I uh, hope we can do it again. Thank you. Right. Thank, thank you, you. Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you're looking for the top compliance masterclass training around, I hope you'll consider my compliance masterclass that I'm putting on in New York on November 12 and 13. It's hosted by Jonathan Marks at Baker and Tilly. You can check out more information on it on my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Everything Compliance or any of the podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.